When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. As the new film, The Edge of War, hits Netflix screens, starring Jeremy Irons as British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, negotiating on the brink of World War II in 1938, we're revisiting an archive debate from 2013, discussing the pivotal moment in history. Here's our host, the writer and Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, Anne Applebaum, with more. Now it is my turn to welcome you to Intelligence Squared and to a debate among four extremely distinguished historians about one of the most controversial moments in 20th century history. In September of 1938, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, together with his French counterpart, agreed to let Adolf Hitler occupy the Sudetenland, an ethnically German part of Czechoslovakia. Calling the crisis a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing, he returned home waving a promise in that picture up there, signed by Hitler not to pursue war any further. So, was he right to do so? Those in support of this motion will argue yes, and those against will argue no. Our first speaker for the motion, for the motion, is John Charmley, professor of modern history at the University of East Anglia and he's the author of Chamberlain and the Lost Peace, as well as Churchill, The End of Glory. Also, as I recall, he was the author of a couple of controversial articles in The Spectator some years back, which addressed precisely these issues. Professor Charmley. Thank you very much, Madam Chairman. If I can start with a quotation and finish with one. It is also a help to our country and to our whole empire and our whole decent, faithful way of living that it is known through the world that we were guiltless of the bloodshed, terror, and misery which have engulfed so many. Appeasement was a long-term policy. It had been pursued by British governments throughout the 19th and 20th century, with one exception, the Great War. The Great War did not suggest that getting involved in Iraq in Europe was really a very good idea. So the first thing to say about Neville... Is he simply pursuing a policy that had been the policy of the British Empire with one disastrous exception? There was nobody in the 1920s and 30s arguing World War I had been a jolly good idea. In fact, the policy of appeasement, the policy of amelioration, and we should come back to these things, was reinforced by the experience of getting involved in World War I and that horrendous loss of life. So... You could not have had a public opinion less favorable to fighting in foreign parts. Of course, it might have been open to the Prime Minister to have done what a later Prime Minister did. Perhaps sex up a dossier? Really? I would have thought of all generations, this generation would know the folly, the utter foolishness of trying to take a country to war that does not want to go. That would not have conduced to one of the things that Neville managed to conduce to, which is a national consensus that by the time war came, there was no alternative. The Treasury warned we could not afford a, str- a long war. The War Office said we couldn't win a short one. Oh, how foolish of the Prime Minister to listen to his advisers. Now, I think, again, we know from more recent examples that it's really rather a good idea that prime ministers listen to the men who are paid to advise them, and perhaps to public opinion, and who knows to parliament, and who knows, they might tell the truth. All of these things Neville did. But now to appeasement itself. It is much misunderstood, largely because of Churchill. Appeasement was not simply a search for peace. What's wrong with peace? I think we're all rather in favour of it, particularly those of us with young sons. 
It was not a policy of peace at any price, as I shall say at the end. But it was a search to prove whether peace was possible. But it was also two other things. It was a search to see whether, if peace was not possible, that would produce a united nation around a different policy. And it was accompanied by a sensible Rearmament policy, not the one favoured by Churchill, full of medium-range bombers and make the country as bankrupt as Churchill was. Churchill was able to win the Battle of Britain because Neville Chamberlain's rearmament policy produced the most sophisticated air defence policy in Europe. Spitfires and radar, thank you, Neville. So it was not a peace at any price. It was not a disarmament policy. It was a search to see whether peace was possible with an iron fist inside the velvet glove. And when, in 1939, oh, of course, with hindsight, everybody, as we shall no doubt here this evening, has 2020 vision. Hitler was a terrible man when nobody doubts that. So was Stalin. So was Saddam Hussein. So was Mussolini. In fact, I'd never known a leader of another country who was not demonized by those seeking to go to war. That's not enough. If we are only to go to war on the side of nice people, with nice allies, we should probably be reduced to going to war with the Isle of Man as our sole ally. <laughs> and why not? So we have a situation where you have a country that is still traumatized by the Great War, still wishes to find a peaceful way, an establishment, a political establishment that agrees, an economic situation that won't allow for it, a military situation that also won't allow for it, as Professor Stone will say, a foreign policy one that won't either. It's not that appeasement was the right policy, it was the only conceivable policy, as Professor Paul Kennedy of Yale has put it. It was the most overdetermined policy in British history, even if he was quoting Professor Paul Schroeder when he said it. Nor is it a complete failure. Because when Britain goes to war in 1939, there is a united country, which there would not have been if they'd gone to war a year earlier on a false prospectus, Hitler has no allies because Mussolini is mysteriously ill, perhaps tying his shoelaces. And France goes with Britain. So Britain has an ally, Hitler does not. Of course, in 1940, it all goes wrong. That's because the British and French army were crap. What was Neville supposed to do? Imitate Stalin and shoot the general staff? I fear some of the general staff had heads made of solid teak and the bullet would have bounced off. So appeasement, far from being a total failure, was an honourable attempt to see whether or not peace was possible. So to finish off, it was not only the right policy, it was the only policy. And I want to finish with a quotation. Whatever else history may or may not say, about these terrible, tremendous years, we can be sure that Neville Chamberlain acted with perfect sincerity according to his lights and strove to the utmost of his capacity and authority, which were powerful, to avoid war, to save the world from this awful, devastating struggle in which we are now engaged. This alone will stand him in good stead as far as what is called the verdict of history. Well, tonight, ladies and gentlemen, you have the chance to be that verdict and to prove the author of those words, one Winston Churchill, right. So remember when you come to cast your vote, Vote Churchill, prove him right by voting for Neville. Thank you very much.
Thank you. So our first speaker against the motion is Sir Richard Evans, the Regis Professor of History and the President of Wolfson College, Cambridge University. His many books include The Third Reich in Power and The Third Reich at War. In 1935, Hermann Goering, known as the second man in the Third Reich, arrived late at his hunting lodge for a meeting with the British ambassador, Sir Eric Phipps. I've been out hunting, he said. Animals, I hope, said the ambassador. And Phipps's reaction showed how well he understood the murderous nature of the Nazi regime. I had the impression, he wrote in one dispatch, that the persons directing the policy of the Hitler government are not normal. Many of us indeed have a feeling that we're living in a country where fanatics, hooligans, and eccentrics have got the upper hand. Already in 1935, Phipps wrote, let's hope our pacifists at home may at length realize that the rapidly growing monster of German militarism will not be placated by mere cooings, but will only be restrained from recourse to its ultima ratio, i.e. war, by the knowledge that the powers who desire peace are also strong enough to enforce it. And when Chamberlain came to power in 1937 as Prime Minister, he immediately replaced Phipps with Sir Neville Henderson, who thought Goering was a gentleman and told the Foreign Office, if we handle Hitler right, my belief is that he'll gradually become more pacific. But if we treat him as a pariah or mad dog, we shall turn him finally and irrevocably into one. History, Madam Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, history has shown that Phipps was right and Henderson was wrong. Chamberlain knew little about Europe and cared even less. He was slow to react to the German threat because he didn't take it seriously. And like Henderson, unlike Phipps and the many well-informed experts on continental Europe who thought like Phipps, Chamberlain regarded Hitler as a normal conventional statesman. He is a man whose word can be trusted, he wrote in a letter to his sister. Hitler had given him assurances that he had no more territorial demands after the Sudeten land, the part of Czechoslovakia that was taken away and given to Germany in the Munich Agreement in 1938. Hitler's word was his bond. Waving the scrap of paper Hitler signed, Chamberlain told crowds that it meant peace for our time. And he should have known that Goering had referred to all treaties as scraps of paper to be torn up when they were no use anymore. Munich appalled MI5, who, according to the official history, were well-informed enough to realize Hitler's aims were without limit and that Poland would be next. They sent Chamberlain a memo to try and stiffen his resolve with secret intelligence reports describing how Hitler was absolutely contemptuous of him in private, describing him as a worm and even an arschloch, which the MI5 translated accurately and helpfully as arsehole. It had no effect. Pisum was even more dismaying to the German army chief of staff, Franz Halder, who knew that Germany in 1938 was in no way prepared for a war with Britain and planned the arrest of Hitler if war broke out to be followed by immediate negotiations for peace. Halder even went to his operational conferences with Hitler carrying a loaded revolver in his belt in case the opportunity should arise for a quick shot. Plans had reached an advanced stage for a coup when the Munich Agreement pulled the rug from underneath the conspirators' feet. They were simply stopped in their tracks by Chamberlain, who refused, of course, to believe that the Germans weren't ready for war. The Czechs had a strong army. They had defensible borders. With British backing, they could have resisted a German invasion. But Chamberlain forced them to surrender. The British government refused to believe that Germany wasn't ready for war, even in 1936, when German rearmament had made so little progress that uh, when Hitler sent in his troops to the Rhineland, in the west of Germany, which is a demilitarized zone by the uh, terms of the peace settlement in 1919, the troops were under orders to withdraw at the slightest sign of Anglo-French objection. Had the French sent in troops, for example, Hitler said later, the military force at our disposal would not have been enough even for limited resistance. Strong action by the British in 1936 or 38 could have prevented war with all its disastrous loss of British lives. It would have encouraged resistance to Hitler within Germany. As it was, both the unopposed remilitarization of the Rhineland and the Munich Agreement over Czechoslovakia persuaded Hitler that he had nothing to fear from the feeble, witless British and their supine allies, the French. Far from calming him down, 
These events, along with the unopposed annexation of Austria in March 1938, all fruits of the policy of appeasement, made him accelerate his policy of conquest and aggression. Now, what you think of appeasement depends, of course, on what you think Hitler's aims were. Chamberlain, uh, and I'm in full agreement here with Professor Charmley, a decent and sincere man, thought Hitler just wanted a few revisions of the Treaty of Versailles in the name of the self-determination of the German people. But knowledgeable and intelligent men like Phipps knew from the very beginning this wasn't the case. And anyone who read Mein Kampf, Hitler's political tract from the mid-20s, or who listened carefully to his speeches, or who found out what he'd been saying to his generals or even to American uh, businessmen and correspondents, knew he was planning a war of European conquest and ultimately aiming at world domination. War was the essence of the Nazi regime. Men like Phipps saw this from the start. Chamberlain's horizons were too limited, too conventional to grasp this basic reality. There's no evidence that he had some kind of cunning plan to keep Hitler on hold while Britain rearmed. He was, in fact, naively obsessed with a desire to avoid war at any price. On the 2nd of November 1939, following the Nazi invasion of Poland, he appeared before the House of Commons, placing his faith in Italian mediation, uh, extraordinarily in Mussolini, of all people, the most unreliable uh, people uh, in modern history. The members of the House of Commons, who knew full well that the Nazis were aiming for European domination, that Poland was just the first step, were furious. As the leader of the opposition rose to his feet, began with the words, speaking for the Labour Party, a Tory backbencher shouted angrily, speak for England. And a few hours later, an emergency meeting of the cabinet forced Chamberlain to issue an ultimatum to the Germans to withdraw. When this was ignored, a declaration of war was issued over the radio by a visibly shattered and disappointed prime minister. Now, let me remind you at this point as I draw my remarks to a close. The motion is not whether Chamberlain was pursuing a tried and tested British policy. It's not whether this is the only policy uh, available to the British government. It's not whether the Treasury didn't allow him any choice. It's not whether um, public opinion wasn't behind it. Appeasement was not in Britain's national interest because it prevented Britain and France from putting a stop to Hitler's drive for world domination when it was still possible to do so. Indeed, because it actually encouraged it. It was not in Britain's national interest because it undermined opposition to Hitler from the leadership of the German armed forces. It was not in Britain's national interest because it Britain left, left Britain woefully unprepared for war when it came, as the disasters of the first year of the war showed, until things began to improve a bit with the Battle of Britain. And it wasn't in Britain's national interest because leaving continental Europe to its own devices would have been a betrayal of staggering proportions, first for Czechoslovakia, then for Poland, then for the rest of Europe. If appeasement had continued, as Chamberlain wanted it to, even during the Nazi invasion of Poland, Hitler would have scored an even more complete victory in Europe than he did in 1940. Britain and the empire would have been next in line. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Trust a, the Regis Professor of History to get it correct. It was peace for our time and not peace in our time. Right. Our second speaker for the motion is Glyn Stone, the Professor of International History at the University of the West of England and the author of books on a huge range of subjects from Neville Chamberlain and the Spanish Civil War to Anglo-French relations in the 1930s. Glyn Stone. You've heard my colleague John Charmley argue that appeasement was the best policy for the British government, and I have no reason whatsoever to disagree with that verdict. I think he has demonstrated very much that it wasn't only the best policy, it was the only policy. And in considering this question, we ought to also bear in mind that uh, there ought to be alternatives to this. If it wasn't appeasement, then what was the best alternative? What was a better policy than that of appeasement? And historians tend to come up with, just as Churchill came up with and so on, with the idea of a grand alliance. A grand alliance of the powers, because after all, that was what has defeated the Kaiser in the First World War, and that was what, of course, eventually defeated Adolf Hitler in the Second World War. So it made sense, common sense, therefore, for Chamberlain and his government to construct a grand alliance to deter and to confront Hitler uh, with, with, with war. Now, of course, the question is, is this realistic? And certainly, uh, Chamberlain didn't believe it to be realistic. There was an occasion in March 1938 
when he, uh, in a letter to one of his sisters, he wrote regular correspondence with both of his sisters, he mentioned to her that uh, the uh, whole question had been examined. The idea of a grand alliance had been under great scrutiny, and the chiefs of staff had been involved, and so on. And it was a marvellous uh, idea in theory, but the problem was in practice. That when it came down to practicalities, the whole thing uh, disintegrated. And he was quite right. There was no way, no possible way of constructing a grand alliance in uh, the 1930s that might deter and oppose Hitler. Uh, the only realistic combination in the 1930s of powers was that which actually materialised, that of an Anglo-French alliance. And that, of course, materialised in March, February-March 1939. Neither the Soviet Union nor the United States was prepared to commit to an alliance to confront and deter Hitler's Germany. Neither of those powers, whether Franklin D. Roosevelt or Joseph Stalin. If we look at the Americans, uh, first of all, we see America deep in isolation. Ever since the fateful decision of 1919, when the Senate rejected the uh, Treaty of Versailles and America's membership of the League of Nations, America had increasingly become deeply uh, uh, and much more isolated as far as international affairs was concerned. And the height of American isolationism was reached, of course, in the mid-1930s with the neutrality legislation passed through Congress, and that, of course, coincides with the period of Neville Chamberlain's government. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was reluctant to get involved in any of the affairs in Europe or in the Far East, whether it be Abyssinia, whether it be the Spanish Civil War, whether it be the Sino-Japanese War, which broke out in the summer of 1937. Uh, Chamberlain was absolutely correct when he said uh, on one occasion, you can expect nothing from the Americans, only words. Certainly not actions. That would be the last thing that America would offer. This is clearly shown when in 1939, during the spring and summer of 1939, the French were making a bid for uh, American aircraft, trying to buy weapons from the United States to uh, help with their rearmament. Congress refused. Even though Roosevelt himself was in favor of this, Congress refused to endorse what we call a policy of cash and carry to enable the French and the British to buy weapons and other materials and pay for them with with cash. That policy was only adopted in November 1939, after the war had started. If we look at the Soviet Union, we can see that again that the charge has been made against Chamberlain that he failed to secure an alliance with the Soviets and that he uh, was to blame for this because of his blind ideological prejudices against the Soviet Union. Well, there's no doubt that uh, Chamberlain and his cabinet were all anti-communist, but at the same time, um, they were also, of course, aware of the Soviets. They were aware of the military problems that the Soviets were experiencing, largely because of the destruction of the Soviet high command, the purges in the Red Army in 1937-38, put a huge question mark over the military credibility of the Soviet armed forces. But apart from that, there was also a question of trust. Could you trust of Stalin? Would Stalin actually make an agreement, an alliance with Britain and France? Well, at one level it looked like that might be possible because negotiations took place in the spring and summer of 1939 to make an alliance. But in the end, uh, of course, as we all know, Stalin opted for an agreement with Nazi Germany in the infamous Nazi-Soviet on Aggression Pact of the 23rd of August 1939. And the reason he did that was because he was able to gain massive benefits and advantages from that association. Benefits and advantages which he could not possibly have got from Britain and France. Britain and France could not sell Poland down the river, could not sell the Baltic states down the river, could not sell Bessarabia down the river. At the same time, they could not offer the sort of economic support which Stalin himself believed he needed, and Stalin was able, of course, to pay for that back by providing raw materials and uh, foodstuffs uh, to the Third Reich. And also, of course, by uh, making the pact, Stalin bought himself time time to reconstruct the Soviet economy, and time also to undo the damage that had been done to the Soviet armed forces through the purges. 
time in an absolutely valuable commodity. And by making that alliance, that uh, was very much favorable, favorable uh, decision for um, Stalin to make. But above all, with regard to this, there was also an opportunity with regard to the pact that in actual fact, Britain and France might go to war with Germany and that therefore there would be a war of the capitalist powers fighting each other. And if they fought each other in a similar way as they'd fought during the First World War, this would be a long war of attrition and the effect would be uh, that there would be, a, 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 as I said, a long-drawn-out struggle, that the various parties would exhaust themselves and this would leave Stalin as Russia, meanwhile rearming for, for all it's worth, in a much, much stronger position to dictate the future of Europe. So there was no prospect at all of making any alliance in the 1930s and especially in 1939 with the Soviet Union. This finally therefore leaves us with the one alliance which Britain had, that with France. The problem with France was, was France a credible ally? France was riven by social and political problems and as a consequence uh, of these problems uh, it put a question mark over the, the credibility of the French. Uh, particularly in terms of their rearmament, particularly the, uh, the, the power of their, of their military forces. And the bottom line was, uh, at the end, that despite this, Chamberlain made an alliance with the French. And the two countries went together, together in September 1939 to fight against Adolf Hitler. They're the only two countries, actually, who declared war upon Hitler's Germany. Certainly Joseph Stalin and Franklin Roosevelt didn't. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Right. Our final speaker against the motion is Piers Brendan, the former keeper of the Churchill Archives Center and fellow of Churchill College, Cambridge, and among other things, the author of The Dark Valley, a Panorama of the 1930s. Winston Churchill memorably defined an appeaser as one who feeds a crocodile, hoping it will eat him last. Like many of Churchill's impromptu remarks, this one was carefully prepared in advance, but it did not express his full mind on the subject. Appeasement, as he admitted, need not be a matter of cowardice. It could mean peaceful conciliation. However, as I shall try to persuade you, the appeasement policy, as actually implemented by Chamberlain, which sacrificed the Czechs to Hitler in December 1938, was an absolute disaster. When Chamberlain returned from Munich in triumph, clutching his umbrella, waving his piece of paper, and announcing that he'd brought peace with honor, Churchill was right to respond that Britain 
had been offered a choice between war and shame, she has chosen shame and she will get war. Of course, Churchill himself was neither consistent nor infallible, but he did grasp the full danger of Nazism. As early as March 1934, Churchill alerted Parliament to the tumultuous insurgent, insurgents of ferocity and war spirit in Germany. Chamberlain would not listen. Hitler's insatiable lust for conquest, his pathological anti-Semitism, his insensate drive to win Lebensraum in the East, his homicidal quest for an Aryan world order, all this was beyond the comprehension of Chamberlain, who was a smug, vain, fundamentally naive man who thought that jokes in Christmas crackers were funny and uh, liked to win at games of musical chairs and only really showed anger when his umbrella got broken. The national government's first great act of appeasement took place in response to Mussolini's rape of Ethiopia in 1935. The Royal Navy could have crushed this in a moment just by blockading the Suez Canal. And this would have had a great moral effect throughout Europe and, 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 and helped to shut Hitler up, or at least to, to warn him that, that we meant business. As the military historian Little Hart wrote, never again would there be so good a chance to check an aggressor so early, and the failure to do so in this case was the most fateful turning point in the history, in the period between the wars. The national government, heeding the supposedly, but not really, a pacifist electorate, was timorous over the, in, in its reaction to Nazi rearmament, which violated the Treaty of Versailles, and to Hitler's reoccupation of the Rhineland in 1936, which violated the Treaty of Locarno. Equally feeble was their response to Hitler's seizure of Austria in March 1938. Lord Halifax, the kind of Christian, said Churchill, who deserved to be thrown to the lions, sent a pathetic protest which Hitler contemptuously ignored. Meanwhile, a pogrom was taking place in Vienna, whose ferocity embarrassed even the Gestapo itself. Uh, some of Austria's 400,000 Jews fled to Berlin, where the anti-Semitism was less acute. Despite such evidence of Nazi barbarity and belligerence, Chamberlain neglected potential allies. He cold-shouldered Roosevelt, ostracized Stalin, snubbed Deladier, once remarking that, the French, that for the French premier, the darkest hour was always before lunch. <laughs> but, but Chamberlain ardently wooed Mussolini, Whereas Churchill agreed with Goering to practically anything they did agree about, which, which was that in any future war, it would be a positive advantage to have Italy as an enemy. <laughs> in his eagerness to mollify Hitler, however, Chamberlain confirmed Mussolini's view that a decadent Britain was uh, led by political eunuchs. He said that the Ethiopians had obviously caught them young. The Ethiopians went into castration. The impression of impotence was compounded by Chamberlain's appointment of obtuse mediocrities, uh, such as Sir Thomas Inskip, the Minister for the Coordination of Defence, of whom it was said that he could look with frank and fearless gaze on any prospect, however appalling, and fail to see it. <laughs> Similarly, Chamberlain's rearmament program was too cautious and penny-pinching to convince the dictators that he would stand up to them. At no risk to the economy, he could have done far more to provide the sinews of war. Some officials did urge firmness, and even the head of the foreign office, Sir Alexander Cadogan, was shocked when Chamberlain argued quite calmly for total surrender. After Chamberlain's three airborne overtures to Hitler, which culminated in the session of the Sudeten fringe of the Czechoslovakia, the German-speaking fringe, uh, at the Munich conference, this saying echoed around Whitehall. If at first you can't concede, fly, fly, fly again. <laughs> However humiliating the terms, though, Chamberlain's defenders argue that Munich gave Britain a vital, vital breathing, spa breathing space in which to defend itself, notably with fighters and radar. Yet as John Charmney himself acknowledges, this was not his intention. Chamberlain's main objective, says John, was to avert war, and he was prepared to go a very long way down the road of national dishonor to get his way. As it was, Germany made much better use of the year's grace than Britain and France. The democracies would have done well to fight in 1938, when the Luftwaffe had no plans or ability to bomb London. The French had a five-to-one superiority to Germany on, the, on its vulnerable western border, and 35 well-equipped Czech divisions, perhaps supported by the Red Army, would have embroiled Hitler in a war on two fronts. After Munich, no full-blooded rearmament program was initiated in Britain, 
largely because Chamberlain assumed that he'd secured peace. The British public was less gullible. After the initial euphoria uh, about Munich, it quickly concluded with hawks like Churchill that Munich had been a total and unmitigated defeat and that the Nazis were criminals whose hands are still dripping with blood and who have just slapped our embarrassed faces before the whole world. The abject failure of appeasement was confirmed in March 1939 when Hitler swallowed the whole of Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain's reluctant response was to guarantee the independence of Hitler's next major target, Poland, among other countries. Yet this did not mark the end of appeasement. It was a further attempt to contain and deter Germany, not a preparation for war, but a construction of a peace front. Hitler was encouraged by other signs of appeasement, among among them dove-like cooings from the BBC, Britain's surreptitious payment of Danegeld in the shape of uh, foreign credits to Germany, the continued exclusion of Churchill from the cabinet, and Chamberlain's ineffectual courting of Stalin. Having seen the democratic worms at Munich, Hitler Hitler said he could not believe that they would now turn. Succumbing to his own illusions, he was convinced that the democracies would leave the Poles in the lurch. Chamberlain's own illusions flourished. Hitler has concluded that we mean business, he said on the 23rd of July 1939, and that this time, and and that the time is not ripe for a major war. That's uh, six weeks, I suppose, before the war um, uh, was declared. After the Nazi-Soviet pact, even after the assault on Poland began, he clung to the hope that Hitler might be peacefully placated. As a threat to Britain's existence and a menace to Western civilization, if not as the embodiment of evil, Hitler should have been confronted earlier. Chamberlain's tragically mistaken policy made his premiership the darkest hour before our finest hour. I beg to oppose the motion. I can now announce that these are the results of the voting that you did before you heard the four panelists speak. So before the debate, there were 25% for the motion, 41% against the motion, and 34% don't know. So I reckon that that the four motion can still win if it wins over those 34% don't know. Gentleman right here in blue. Is it not true that both the Canadians and the Australians had made it quite clear that if we had gone in 1938, they would not have been with us? And that being the case, is it really conceivable that without the support of the Commonwealth, we would have had the British people truly on side in time to get the effort going? Yep. Um, Next. Basically, uh, my question would be that if we had attacked Germany and we declared war and we were going to attack Germany at that point, wouldn't that have actually driven the German people to support Hitler in the defense of Germany and then you're into a full-blown war and then even if you win that, you're back in the space of where we are with Iraq today, for instance. Right. And there was one up here. What was Chamberlain's uh, calculation with regard to Poland when he offered guarantees? Did he simply mean to prolong the transition, the, the, to have longer period of preparation for war, or did, did he mean it seriously? Right. Was Chamberlain serious about Poland? So, Professor Charmley, uh, is it correct that the Canadians and Australians uh, would not have supported war in 1938, and wouldn't, the, wouldn't that have riled up the Germans as well? And what... Well, yes and yes. Uh, jolly good points. Uh, if you go around declaring wars on, war on people, they don't say, oh, that's a joke. They fight back. And oddly enough, if you declare war on them, their people rally around the regime. On the empire point, absolutely right. People sometimes say that Britain stood alone in 1940, which is another one of those Churchillian exaggerations. Uh, they actually stand with the United Empire around them. And actually, if you look at what the Canadians in particular contribute to the British war effort in 1940, it's tremendous. They would not have been there in 1938, nor would South Africa, 
nor indeed would the rest of the empire. I mean, this is a problem. People forget that Britain was not a little offshore island back then. Worldwide empire. Oh, let's ignore the empire. Let, let, again, it's, it's all very well to say, of course, we're all historians with hindsight. What one shouldn't do is to ignore the circumstances of the time. As Lord Macaulay, a very great uh, Whig historian, once said, uh, the real task of the historian is to remember what is now past was once the future, and people know as much about it as we know about our future. And I think that's a very good point to me. Right. Professor Evans. Well, let me just remind you again of the motion, which is the best policy for the British government in our judgment, knowing what happened later. That is... That is, that is all about, that is all about uh, history, is all about results and outcomes. And we, we are in a very privileged situation. We know what happened. And from that point of view, we can judge whether Chamberlain and the British government were right or not in their policy. As for the question about uh, Germany 1938, just to remind you that, as I said, General Halder and a whole bunch of leading generals were ready to stage a coup d'etat if a war broke out. So... Those who were the only group who were in power, who had, a, who had enough power, clout, who were able to stage a conspiracy of that sort, would, I think, have acted without, uh, if, if there had been a war. Germany was weak in 1938. They knew it. It didn't require the entire British Empire to, uh, to, to fight against the Germans. Just one push, and it would collapse from inside. Groaning, groaning. Instead of groaning, speak. I'm groaning almost because how can a democratic leader base a policy on what might happen if you take or don't take particular action with regard to oppositions within another country, whether the army would or would not have acted in that way? How can you take a risk that might then lead to a war which will involve the lives of millions and millions of people? And that was the thought at the time, that the war would bring huge civilian casualties as well as battlefield casualties. But it's interesting to note in September 1938 that, uh, first of all, you have the Sudetenland. Well, the Sudetenland is where the uh, fortifications are. And the problem is there's lots of Germans in the Sudetenland. And what are they going to do? Which way are they going to go in terms of that? Can the Czechs rely upon the, upon the loyalty of uh, their German population? And also, it's clear, Peter Jackson, a historian of French intelligence, uh, wrote an article a number of years ago in which he pointed out that French intelligence was absolutely convinced that the Czechs would be rolled over in a matter of, a, a matter of days. So this argument about whether or not the, there were formidable uh, fortifications, formidable Czech forces, etc., is one, of course, as all things, uh, debatable. And from the French point of view at the time, there was a clear feeling that Czechoslovakia would not be able to withstand uh, assault by the German forces. And bearing in mind, of course, as well, that what the French would have done was mobilise behind the Maginot Line. Right. They had no uh, real offensive capability to actually attack Germany. I see desire for response on this side. Of course, the Czech army was extremely uh, well-equipped. It was uh, very modern, up-to-date, unlike the Poles. It had defensible lines. The Germans were certainly uh, pretty convinced that there would be a really hard fight if they tried to invade. They did not think there would be a a rollover. The the question uh, was that, again, I think the, the Germans were in a position in 1938 where they felt weak, they felt vulnerable. That was a moment for Britain and France to uh, put uh, their foot down and say it's not going any further, even more so in 1936 when Germany barely started to rearm. Okay, so... Okay, um, my my question is uh, with the opening remarks that um, appeasement has been used over almost a a century of foreign policy uh, previous to uh, World War II and the fact that Britain was unprepared up until declaring war. Would you therefore advocate that going to war over Poland was actually the wrong thing, and that, in fact, Britain should have let Hitler take Poland to not get involved in the war, in which case are the the freedom of nearly half of Europe an acceptable casualty to allow us to live comfortably at home in the United Kingdom. Right. So another question about Poland. Was it an acceptable casualty? Next 
Professor Charmley attempts to put um, Chamberlain's policy uh, into, fit it into the pattern of British foreign policy during the 19th century. I would put it that that's wrong. British policy in the 19th century was indeed built on uh, non-involvement with Europe, but it was also strong defense of British interests and credible deterrence, which did on one or two occasions lead to war. I would say Canning, Castlereagh, Melbourne, uh, Disraeli, and of course Palmerston, none of them would have behaved as supinely as Chamberlain and uh, let potential opponents take vital, uh, have vital victories at Britain's and its allies' expense. We'll start with number one. Uh, was This one was directed directly at Professor Charlie. Was British policy in the 19th century, in fact, based on a long involvement with Europe? And did, did Chamberlain, therefore, was he therefore long out of step with what had come before? If I can try and deal with both that one and the deterrence issue, because they are actually part of the same thing. I think that the evidence is that where, as for example, with Portugal or Spain, British sea power could be um, used, then certainly Britain was able effectively to intervene. However, when it was a matter of Central Europe, say, for example, the Austro-Prussian War, even the Franco-Prussian War, and one only has to mention, although one doesn't want to get into it, but we are in the Royal Geographical Society, the Schleswig-Holstein crisis, and the plain fact of the matter, quite, so the plain fact of the matter is that certainly where Britain's deterrence could be used, that's the Navy, Britain intervened, where she could not, she did not, and last time I looked, Poland wasn't really amenable to British sea power and Czechoslovakia was landlocked. So I think that in that sense, Chamberlain's policy was exactly one with that of the 15th Earl of Derby, with that of the 14th Earl of Aberdeen, where it involved an area that Britain could not fight. They actually agreed with Canning, which is it is better not to bluff where you cannot be effective. But of course, if only we'd known all the German secrets and we hadn't listened to our intelligence, well, if my auntie was my uncle, she'd have a different set of equipment. <laughs> right, we have a taker for the Antony Eden question. Role of Antony Eden's significance thereof. Piers Brendan. Antony Eden's an interesting figure. He was the son of a half-mad baronet and a very beautiful woman, and somebody said that he was a little bit of both himself. <laughs> and the problem with Eden was that he, that he was highly emotional, and he fell, out with, uh, he, he fell out with Chamberlain, really, I think, he, uh, because he felt miffed that Chamberlain had taken a front seat uh, in, in, in foreign policy. I think Eden was pretty overrated. He was, um, as Beaverbrook described him, he was a rebel in velvet gloves. And he, he, he was not, not really, he was regarded by Churchill as a sort of white hope of the future. And... Uh, I, I don't think that uh, I think the proof of the pudding w was in 1956, where he proved that he wasn't the White Hope at all; that he was an absolute disaster area. Um, I, 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 th I think he didn't represent any serious resistance to the appeasement policy. If you look at what he said, he was very feeble, and after he'd resigned, he didn't really support Churchill in his, um, his, his assault on, a, on appeasement. So I, I would say, really, that Eden is a bit of a broken reed in this particular area, and I'd certainly always have preferred Churchill drunk to Eden sober. Going to war over Poland... Uh, wasn't that a waste of time? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't Poland have been? An ex wasn't it an acceptable casualty? We should have let Hitler occupy Poland, Professor Charmley. They're both very good questions, and indeed, they both illustrate why Chamberlain's policy was right. Because by 1939, it had become clear you didn't need secret intelligence reports anymore. You certainly didn't need some press attaché trying to sex up dossiers. It's a pretty dangerous line. Let's not do that. People aren't actually that stupid. You can't actually change public opinion in three weeks, whatever a boastful chap says in his diary. What changed opinion was Hitler breaking his word. What changed opinion was 
what happened to Czechoslovakia and what looked like it was going to happen to Poland. As Glynn said, there were only two countries in World War II that went to war voluntarily. That was Britain and France after they had exhausted all other possibilities and precisely the same factors which for much of the 1930s militated against involvement in 1939 convinced most people Harry Pollitt, the leader of the Communist Party, and Sir Oswald Mosley apart, that the moment had come and there was no alternative. And that is why when the disaster happened in 1940 and Britain was almost alone and under tremendous threat, public opinion did not crumble. Churchill was right. Hate to contradict him on one of the few occasions when he's being modest, but he was right when he said, I gave the lion's roar. And the reason the lion was roaring in favour of a war where it had not previously is that Neville had gone to the farthest and to the uttermost. And we can see, and everybody could see in 1939, there was no alternative. That was not clear in 1938. Right. Yeah. Professor Evans' response. It was Chamberlain himself did not see that in 1939. He was still appeasing away uh, when Poland was being invaded, that he was overruled by the House of Commons and died a broken man a few months later. He had, there was no limit to the policy of appeasement. It was not something where, uh, where, which was going to have an end for him. He thought Mussolini could intervene. Now, um, my point is that Poland was not the actual subject of the declaration of war. The subject, the reason for war was that a final realisation in British political elite that and military elite that Germany was about conquering the whole of Europe. And I agree with Professor Charmley that that realisation came in March 1939 when Hitler invaded the non-German speaking part of Czechoslovakia. But, of course, all of this could have been prevented in 1936, over the remilitarization of the Rhineland, the French could have been uh, prompted by the British to move in and invade, and stop the Germans. It could have been done in September 1938 when the British were prepared for war, but it was not. Right, this man right here. Um, would the panel agree that every time Chamberlain appeased Hitler, Germany got stronger? So, for instance, um, when uh, Germany took over Austria... They managed to uh, take over all their reserves. I think it's about then about 800 million pounds, uh, which is very valuable to them. And when they took over Czechoslovakia, they took over their industries. So by appeasing Hitler each time, he actually made him stronger. And when it came to war, it put us right behind the game. And now we had one over here. Before Munich, uh, Hitler had written Mein Kampf to. Uh, uh, looking for Lebensraum in the East. He had imprisoned large numbers of the Communist Party and killed many more in Germany, and he had taken opposite sides to Stalin in the Spanish Civil War. Did Stalin really make a trade with Hitler because he thought he could get more out of it, or because he was desperate at the lack of serious cooperation from the British and the French? Right. Thank you very much. Okay. Summing up speeches will be made while you vote, and they will each last two or three minutes, and we make them in the reverse order to which they were, the speaker spoke at the beginning. So first goes Piers Brendan. Um, what, what, uh, what I feel uh, is the most important thing, really, is that the, the origins of this uh, business of appeasement go back to 1935. What, I, I was very struck by the by looking at 1935 and discovering that popular opinion was absolutely outraged by Mussolini's occupation of Ethiopia, not least, of course, because he was using poisonous gas and because uh, the, the, the British, who had uh, got completely uh, foolproof uh, evidence of the fact that he was using poisonous gas, refused to condemn him on that. Halifax got up in the House of Lords and said that he couldn't impugn the honour of, uh, of a great country. But the British public 
And I think, uh, again and again, it comes back to this in a democracy. What do the people think? And in 1935, what they thought was uh, strange because we ourselves had um, had a long imperial tradition, that they thought that Mussolini's behavior in Ethiopia was absolutely disgraceful. Now, there was an, an easy option, which we did not take, namely of blocking the Suez Canal. I think this would, have, this would have satisfied outraged public opinion in Britain. It would have isolated Germany and it would have sent a signal to Hitler that, these, that, that we were not political eunuchs, that we, we could, in fact, stand up uh, for ourselves. And it would have, something that we haven't talked about at all, it would have served notice on Japan because don't forget that what was going on all the time uh, from 1931 onwards was, was the, the, the continual uh, nibbling away uh, of, of China by Japan uh, breaking out into a major war in, in 1937. The, the Second World War started in 1937 in the Far East. This, I think, uh, had we made a stand there had we made a stand the following year over the uh, uh, over the occupation of the Rhineland, which would have been easy. The Germans uh, ha hadn't got any proper bullets in their guns. They had dummy bullets, and they were under orders to retreat if, the, if the, any opposition was shown. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to stop Hitler early. Um, and in 1935, we'd have been backed by public opinion. So I, I so, sort of see the justice of what Churchill said in his book on the Second World War, when he called it an unnecessary war. I rest my case on that. Right. Thank you. Glynstone. I'd like to emphasize the uh, kind of strategic um, problems faced by Britain in, in the 1930s, because we had not only to consider... Um, Europe, we had to consider the Mediterranean, we had to consider uh, the Far East as well. And it would have been massively helpful to the British if the Americans had come in and helped us in the Far East. And certainly uh, Chamberlain hoped that the Americans would do that, uh, but they failed to get, offer any real support in the Far East as much as in Europe and, and, and elsewhere. This created really problems for our rearmament because we had to rearm our naval, air and land forces. And that would require enormous amounts of investment. That investment was made, made on a considerable basis, both through increased taxation and through loans and so on. But in the end, it would never be sufficient to actually beat Germany by ourselves or even in tandem with the French. When I to look at the First World War to see that it had taken four great powers to finally bring Germany to the to surrender in 1918. And indeed, it took a combination of powers during the Second World War to achieve that as well. And there was no prospect of us being able to do that or fighting a, a, a war, certainly to win a war, more importantly, probably not to lose a war without the support of other, other great powers. And the United States uh, was, in a sense, the real problem. If the Americans had been prepared to give that kind of support, then maybe it would have been a different story. But it's interesting to note that in 1940, when we were actually uh, now at war with uh, Germany, along with the French, during the period called the Phony War, Sumner Wells came to Europe and visited uh, Paris and Berlin and, and London, and he talked about making concessions to, to Germany. That was the kind of thinking that was going on in the State Department through the 30s and into the Second World War, that there was still a possibility of making a settlement and of uh, reaching some kind of agreement with, uh, with, with, with Hitler, even in March 1940. Fact of the matter was what they didn't want, what they really feared, and is what they got, was a Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, that would be dominated by the communists. And in the end, that is what happened. Their failure to give real and concrete support to Britain and France ended with their great nightmare. And in the end, Europe was divided, and it was divided between communism and capitalism. Thank you. Thank you. Richard Evans. One thing we all agree on, I think, is that the Soviet Union was weak after all the purges of the armed forces, munitions, factories, and so on. At the end of the 1930s, Stalin was terrified, uh, wanted some kind of temporary stability while he put things back together again. Uh, I just want to come back also to Professor Stone's uh, arguments about Britain seeking alliances and so on. All of this would not have been necessary had appeasement not destroyed the credibility of the League of Nations. The League of Nations was what uh, was uh, or collective security. The idea, the idea that you, the, what, what happened in 1935, 
uh, with the invasion of Abyssinia was that the League of Nations attempted and made a valiant attempt to try and condemn Mussolini, to try and raise sanctions. All of this was very popular in the United Kingdom, but it was completely sabotaged by the British government because it believed in one-to-one diplomacy, not in invoking collective security, uh, in, and that destroyed any further prospect of it. So uh, the final point I want to make is about the economy. The British economy was far stronger uh, than the, the German. It survived the uh, Depression much, much better than the, than the German economy. Germany is extremely hard hit by the Depression, and it took a long time to recover. The recovery was driven by Rialman, but it didn't really happen until the very late 19. 1930s. In the mid-1930s, Britain was in a much stronger economic position to, uh, to deal with Germany, had it wished to. Right. Thank you. Uh, John Charmley has the last word. How nice. For change. Well, I did enjoy the Alice in Wonderland world that 2020 hindsight produces, in which this warlike Hitler was always determined on war, was determined on war because he was appeased. Would he have been deterred? Oh, no, some German generals were going to shoot him. Yet German generals were always going to shoot Hitler. And when they finally got round to trying to do it, they mucked it up. God, really? Let, let's commit a whole empire and millions to war on the, on the rumour that some German general's going to get his shot right. That's a good one. Oh, the wisdom of the Monday morning quarterback. It's wonderful. The fact is, the policy was, as Paul Schroeder and Paul Kennedy have said, the most overdetermined in British history. No other was possible. Richard is, of course, quite right. The British economy was strong by 1939. That's because Neville had not bankrupted the country by going for the stupid rearmament Churchill wanted, which would have produced a bunch of medium-range bombers in 1940. Wouldn't have produced Churchill wasn't in favour of Spitfires or radar. He wanted medium-range bombers. That would have worked. No, 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 no. Come on. I do hope you've voted the right way. But it was a wonderful exercise in nostalgia listening to the other side. I feel like Eric Morgan. They gave the same old arguments, but not necessarily in the right order. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our panelists. Anyway, we now have the result. Before the debate, there was 25% for the motion, and after the debate, 44% for. Uh, before the debate, there was 41% against the motion. After the debate, 52% against the motion. Ooh. Don't know shrunk from 34% to 4%. So bravo to all the panelists for having changed at least 30% of my... <laughs> <laughs>